G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. My absolute um, favourite book on evangelism or outreach or speaking about Jesus uh, is a punchy little book by a bloke named Max Stiles called The Marks of the Messenger. Have you read that one? The Marks of the Messenger. It, it, it's a perler. Uh, it really is. It would be my, um, my absolute pick. I think it's marvellous because it's warm and it's encouraging. Um, it's it's an, a book on evangelism that is more about Jesus than it is about techniques or kind of methods or anything like that. It just gets you um, looking at Jesus, which I think is fantastic. Do yourself a favour, The Marks of the Messenger by Max Stiles. You can borrow my copy if you'd like. Um, anyway, Max Stiles, he tells a story about a Christian man, um, an African-American minister actually, named Thabiti, Thabiti Anyabwile, um, because Mac invited Thabiti to come over to the United Arab Emirates, as in, in the Middle East, which is where... Um, Mac was, invited Thabiti to come and talk about Jesus. Now, why invite Thabiti in particular? Um, Because he was an awesome evangelist. He was great at speaking about Jesus. Um, And Mac worked on a university campus there in the United Arab Emirates. And Mac had organised, he'd set up this debate or this dialogue between a Muslim and a Christian and he wanted Thabiti to be that Christian um, in the debate, in the dialogue. And so he invited, he flew him over. Mac flew Thabiti over for the debate and it went really well. Um, It went really well. Uh, But he tells the story of the conversation that they had just afterwards. Here it goes. Thabiti and I walked across the university courtyard. It was late. Still darkness replaced the normal hustle and bustle of student campus life. It felt eerie to step from the bright lights and ornate auditorium and electric atmosphere of the Muslim-Christian dialogue into the warm desert night air of the Arabian Peninsula. Thabiti had just spent five hours in dialogue and debate with Muslim friends. Thabiti sparkled. His warm, relaxed presence, combined with his startling insight, presented a powerful defence of the gospel as he challenged opinions, laid out facts, answered questions and proclaimed Christ. Bassam, our worthy Muslim opponent and friend, represented Islam. Bassam... Uh, His deep understanding of the Bible and Christian theology would shame most Christians. He also understood something else. As we left, Bassam gave me a hug and whispered in my ear, one thing we agree about, Mac, we made history tonight. And why would he say that? Because Bassam understood that Muslim-Christian dialogue just isn't done in the Arabian Peninsula. When Thabiti and I reached the car, parked in the sandlot, Behind the university, Thabiti leaned back in his seat, looked out my window and said the last thing I expected him to say, Mac, since you called me to do this last year until the moment I stepped up to the mic, I have been afraid. Afraid? I had just watched my brother do one of the bravest things I had ever seen with such grace and winsomeness that you would have thought he was at a family picnic. 
Afraid? It was as if the three camera film crew, reporters, photographers had been invited over for coffee into the BT's living room. Sure, some would believe that as a convert from Islam to Christianity, Fabiti should be executed. Even Bassam believes converts who are citizens of Muslim nations should be executed. But Fabiti had never mentioned it. And we didn't talk about it much either. We all knew how very brave, how very bold Fabiti is with the gospel. Can we please pray together as we come to Luke 6? in God's word to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to your word now and as we see there in the pages of scripture the conflict that Jesus endured within his lifetime of opposition and ridicule and people trying to lay out traps for him to fall into and corner him Um, Father, we ask that you would allow us to see Jesus all the more clearly this morning. May we be inspired, may we be intrigued by our Saviour. Would you please grant us a realistic impression of the world around about us and an accurate estimation of our own gifts and abilities and the areas that we still need to grow perhaps even the inclinations within us that we need to work against to live for Jesus in our context, in our life, in our relationships. But Father, may we see Jesus as we come to your word now. May he emerge from this passage our joy and our delight, our confidence and assurance in the midst of a world of opposition. May he take hold of our very lives for his good and glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so Luke chapter 6. Now, most of us will be aware, of course, um, when we say Luke chapter 6 or Luke chapter 5 or verse 13 or, you know, whatever it is, uh, chapter 5 verse 36 or whatever, the, the chapters and the verses in our Bibles, of course, are entirely artificial, aren't they? Uh, the chapters were added in by a couple of clerics in the 13th century. They, they put them in there for us. And uh, a printer in the 16th century came up with the verse numberings. Uh, and both of those, of course, make our life much easier. As we try to find a passage, we don't need to just memorise the whole thing. We can say Luke chapter 6, verse 1, Luke chapter 5, verse 36, and we can all quickly find our way um, there. But the chapter numbers do do this. They obscure this. They obscure that Luke tells one story in his gospel, Luke the human author here, one story that flows from paragraph, one paragraph to the next, without these clean, hard, um, sort of decisive breaks that perhaps our chapter numbers imply. Um, And chapter 5, verse 36, where we were last week, Jesus is speaking, he was speaking, wasn't he, to these religiously minded, very serious indeed um, folks there, Um, about the direction that they were taking in their lives. Do you remember that from the end of uh, last week's sermon? If not, I'll give us a quick recap. Um, Because Jesus could see that these men were headed the wrong way in their spiritual lives, in their religious lives. They had set themselves on a collision course with Jesus. uh, Because, why? Because they would not tear themselves away from the tradition and the habits and their religious ways Um, They weren't willing to question 
the old way that they were so established in. So let's just pick that up from chapter 5, verse 36, as we get back into the the groove of of Luke's gospel here, verse 36 of chapter 5, if you have it in front of you. He, Jesus, told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins... If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out and the wine skins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wine skins and no one after drinking the old wine wants the new for he says, the old is better. Now, which will it be, friends? The old and familiar or the new, though unsettling? The old and safe or the new, though perhaps threatening, that Jesus, of course, was bringing in his context. Now, last week, um, those of you who were here, you'll remember, I urged us, didn't I, to walk a mile in the shoes, you know, of those religious people, um, to see if perhaps we aren't more like them than we care to admit sometimes, stuck in our ways, established in our traditions, caught in our habits, perhaps... Uh, with the company that we keep, do you remember the context there, the people that we like to roll with? Maybe Jesus' warnings are precisely what we needed to hear back then, that the Son of Man came to save sinners. That's the new way. The Son of Man came to save sinners. And so, shock, horror, we find him hanging out with sinners. And is there a challenge in that for us? But this week, well, let me remind you why the chapter headings are actually also very helpful. It's because Luke chapter 6 marks a parting of the ways between the old and the new. Luke chapter 6 does actually set off in quite a different direction from where Luke chapter 5 was. The chapter heading is very helpful for us, actually, because we begin to see now, Luke chapter 6, that, yeah, some will stand for the old, some will uh, stand with the old, some will stick up for their traditions and stuck in their ways and stand against Jesus in the process. But we begin to see that for those who will stand with the new who will stand with this Son of Man who came to save sinners, stand with Jesus, stand by Jesus, whatever comes, we start to see what it will entail. It's time, Luke chapter 6, to stand and be counted with Jesus. That's where we're going today. But know this, it's going to cost you if you want to stand with Jesus. It's going to hurt. There will come heat and hassle and harrying, as we see here. But I reckon Luke chapter 6 shows us something else. It shows us that there is no better way to live, that there is no better cause to live for than the cause of Jesus in this world, than the the gospel of this Son of Man, this Lord of life, this Jesus of Nazareth. And they part ways, they part ways, Luke chapter 6 verse 1, with a question. Let's take a look together. Well, it looks like a question. I think it's actually more of an accusation and I wonder if you'd agree. Luke chapter 6 verse 1, have you got it there in front? One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some of the heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees, all right, that's the religious experts, that's the heavies, that's the old ways tradition blokes. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And perhaps you're thinking to yourself as you read through, actually, that's, um, that's a pretty good question. Is it? The question is good, isn't it? 
Um, because, uh, or at least maybe it's a good question. Perhaps you're scratching your head and kind of thinking, um, I'm not quite sure, I don't know my Old Testament well enough to know if walking through a grain field and rubbing some stuff in my hands and then eating it, would that be a problem if I did that on the Sabbath in that context? Uh, would that, is that breaking God's law? Are they doing that? Because if they are, then it's a really good question. Because it's pretty hard to see Jesus as the messenger and saviour from God, do you see, uh, if he, or in this case his disciples, are parading around flouting God's law. Do you see the problem? The God of the universe, his alleged heavenly father, eternal, unchangeable, does he represent him or not? As I said, I think the Pharisees though, well they've made up their minds already, haven't they? Verse 2 there, some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Verse 3, Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'd like you to mull over Jesus' answer there. Because I find it curious. Does Jesus leap to their defence? Does he argue the toss with the Pharisees about the plucking and the rubbing and the eating and the, on the Sabbath and the Sabbath law restrictions and so forth? Because, by the way, you won't find a verse in your Old Testaments or if you do, I'd like to know about it because I haven't found it yet, you won't find a verse in your Old Testaments condemning the picking and plucking and rubbing and and eating, uh, at least not directly. Now, Jewish custom of the day, and perhaps this is what the Pharisees were referring to, oh, they had a bunch of extra rules loaded on top of God's laws about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath and what really breached the Sabbath. Oh, they had their rules um, over the top and the, the disciples had certainly breached those. But in terms of God's law, well, Jesus' disciples were arguably in the clear. But is that what Jesus does? Does Jesus leap to their defence? Why didn't Jesus defend them? In fact, what Jesus does say kind of makes it sound like, well, maybe they did break the law, doesn't it? I mean, have a look at the example that he uses. Look at the example, verse 4. Just take a look there again. He asked, what did David do? Chapter 6, verse 4. He, David, uh, he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. Um, David wasn't a priest, by the way. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man, that's referring to himself. Then Jesus said to these Pharisees, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Isn't that a curious defence? Whether or not my disciples broke the law, you say that they did, fine. Let's talk about the law. Let's talk about circumstances under which it must be broken. Or let's talk about, perhaps better, who decides where and how the very law of God applies. He says this to who? He says this to teachers of the law and Pharisees, to experts and authorities, which I've got to say, this is a kind of unsettling thought. Do you see the crisis that's building here in Luke's Gospel, this story of Jesus' life? Because what do you mean? 
Who decides where and how the word of God applies to men on earth? Who decides how the law of God, the old way, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses handed down the centuries, which has regulated the life of God's people for centuries? What do you mean who decides where and how it applies? And quite transparently, Jesus claims, well, I decide where and how it applies. What does he say there? End of verse 5. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What exactly is it going to mean to stand in this new way? What exactly is it going to mean to stand by this guy, this Son of Man, this Lord of the Sabbath alleged, who sure seems to play pretty fast and loose with God's law, or at least is bringing a novel interpretation to it. Do you see, this isn't really a passage, is it, about how you should or shouldn't spend your rest day in your week. Oh, it's much bigger than that. How you should or shouldn't spend your Sunday or in, in, indeed your Saturday. It was Saturday back then for then, wasn't it? The Sabbath? No, the much bigger question is just what kind of a life is this Jesus calling me to? And what connection does it have, if any, with the historic ways of God? And verse 6, from verse 6 and onwards, he begins to paint that very picture. Um, this Lord, this Son of Man, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord over the law of God, it shows us what his ways are. His ways are a way of love that leads to life. Let's take a look there in verse 6. So on another Sabbath, verse 6, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. What's Jesus up to here? He could have done it on the sly. He could have done it quietly. He could have sidled up to the bloke. No, get up and stand in front of everyone. Verse 9. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Um, in, in modern workplaces these days, um, is it still the same? I, I, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, when I was an engineer 15 years ago, it certainly was the case. They have all these slogans about safety around your workplace. You know, posters and you know, all over the place, stickers on your cars and, and uh, whatever. They, all these slogans about safety. Safety is my responsibility or safety never sleeps or um, safety starts with you or safety first. Or, um, I saw this one, work safe today because heaven can wait which I thought was quite nice. We could put that one up here, couldn't we? Anyway. No, we should. Anyway, for another time. Um, and in my experience, isn't it true, those sorts of messages, they, they seep through over time. And you do end up with a safer workplace culture. The message gradually kind of works its way into you and you do end up with safer work sites, um, which is a very good thing. But isn't Jesus saying here, I may be the apparently law-bending, lord of love 
that leads to life. I am the Lord of love that leads to life. And if you think you can quote the word of my father at me and corner me and accuse me and back me into a corner, no, no, stand up in front of everyone. Let's do this so that everyone sees what I want to be known for. I want to be known for love that leads to life. That is the Lord that this Lord is, the law that this Lord wants to be known for and wants his disciples to see him as and then live by himself. Chapter 6, verse 9, then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Now, I wonder if I could um, just take a little tangent here. Does love... You can see the ethic of love working it out here, working out here in Jesus' actions. Does love lead us Christians to dispense with all kinds of laws over us? Uh, and we could probably have a very fruitful discussion, I think, about the application of the Old Testament law, couldn't we? The, old te- the application of the Old Testament law uh, to us Christians today. And we've had that conversation many times. Christian, you are not under the law of Moses as we've seen from Romans or Galatians. Uh, It is not a law over us in that sense anymore. It was for Israel in a certain time and place and circumstance. Uh, But Christian, that law in God's word still comes to us as the word of God. It still teaches us of the character and saving works of our God through history. We can't completely disregard it, but it is not a law over us anymore. But I actually think it would be worth going off on a slightly different tangent and I hope you don't mind and I think it's worth the few minutes it will take um, because it's absolutely related to how we use this language of love and life and law. Can you be a person of love and still hold yourself? Can you be a person of love and still hold other Christians to laws or requirements about how they conduct themselves in their lives. Can you be a person of love and still hold other Christians to the laws of the Bible? Because I don't know about you, I'm I'm sure you have, I've been asked on a number of occasions in a bunch of conversations, if you Christians are all about love, then why aren't you all about any two people loving one another? You see the connection now? If Jesus' ethic leads him to trump the law with this love ethic, then oughtn't we all be supporters, specifically of homosexual practice, as an expression of our advocacy of love, do you see? Rather than calling on gay Christians to live a life of of celibacy or to to live a lie, to deny themselves the the joy of love or indeed that, that avenue, that opportunity for service in a loving relationship. I'm sure you can see the connection between the kind of language of our passage and the language in our conversation today. Can I just say two brief things, two brief things um, on that topic? And as always, when I touch on this kind of topic, it comes with the invitation to let's have a chat afterwards. Like if this touches a nerve, let's make a time, we'll sit down, we'll talk it through some more together because I can't possibly say everything that needs to be said from a 
pulpit, can I, just because a passage touches on these themes. Um, but that's, I mean, this is about people's real lives and feelings and futures. But can I say two things relating to Jesus' words here? Firstly, it's important to remember that laws are only one dimension of a far more complex biblical picture of God's design for us as people. I think that's important to see, that the Bible not be reduced to a book about laws. Um, And that's true concerning uh, laws surrounding our sexuality, but it's true of all biblical laws, about every area of life. Law is just one of the ways, but it is only one of the ways that God uses to describe the life that he calls us to. In fact, I think I would argue uh, that rules and laws are not even the main way that God describes life under him as it's intended to be. So as a parallel example, in our text today, the laws regarding Sabbath observance, right? Um, Which there certainly are laws in the Bible on that. Just see the Ten Commandments, number four, there it is. Um, As a parallel example, the Sabbath observance were only one dimension of a far more complex biblical picture of um, God's intention that we be a people who work and who rest. Uh, The Bible, it celebrates work on the one hand, and yet it celebrates rest, but it does that through stories and poems and heroes and villains and all of these different ways, including laws. So what emerges is a picture of men and women and boys and girls engaged in a world under God, neither as sleepless robots always working, nor as lazy layabouts always resting, but as healthy, holy, happy, hard-working and yet restful people. The Sabbath, do you see? It's this complex picture that's built up. So as for Jesus' clash with the law here... In Luke 6, well, Luke could advocate for breaching the letter of the law regarding who can or can't eat the bread of the presence, 1 Samuel 21. Jesus could advocate for breaching some of the case law, can I put it generously, surrounding uh, the uh, healing on the Sabbath. But that doesn't mean he stood against God's holy, higher purpose in the Sabbath. Jesus didn't rail against a rounded picture of God's intention for us that we be a people who rest in him and rest with him and in the Sabbath. So, no, in, this, in Luke 6, we see he ironically upholds the big picture of God's intention, intention for us by breaching the little detail as it was misapplied. Do you see? I'm saying Jesus faced two situations in Luke 6 where dedication to live God's way caused him to clash with a law that wasn't meant for that circumstance. Do you see what I mean? He wasn't, Jesus wasn't departing from an entire biblical pattern. He was living the biblical pattern of love at the expense of a misapplied detail in the law. So the first thing is, Let's not see Luke 6 as Jesus dispensing with God's word willy-nilly. In fact, quite the opposite. But the second thing, the second thing, well, if the big ethic is love, then shouldn't Christians advocate for love, yes, even between two men and two women or whatever? 
To which I think we need to step back and say, well, of course, Christians will and Christians must advocate for love. You can't get yourself in a situation where Christians are no longer advocating for love. That definitely doesn't work. Of course, Christians will and must and should advocate for love. But the love that we advocate for, if it is to be biblical love, has got to learn its shape, has got to learn its form, has got to learn its texture and substance from the big picture of God's intention for us. And at some points, that will run against, run counter to our inclinations and our desires and our passions and our yearnings and our longings. Whether, may I say, whether those yearnings are heterosexual or homosexual. Uh, The Bible, doesn't it? It shows itself very wise to the ways of the human heart. Uh, The Bible knows that our passions and our desires, um, even for good things can lead us away from God, can lead us into godless patterns in life. Uh, We can think of biblical examples, can't we? You say Solomon. Think of King Solomon just for a second. Solomon and his countless wives and concubines. Now, can you really argue that Solomon didn't love his wives? I think we have to say that he loved them more than he loved God, more than he loved God's desire for him, his will for Solomon's life more than he loved God himself, do you see? So my point is, the love that we are to champion as Christians, following in the footsteps of Jesus, is given a very definite and very particular shape. And central to that is the self-sacrificing love of the Lord Jesus in his self-denying death that we might live and thrive unto God. Uh, Now, that's a very long tangent on what it means for love to trump law and how that might apply to one contemporary issue. And as I said, if you'd like to chase that down some more, talk that over some more, hey, but what about, that doesn't make sense, my friend said this, or I feel, you know, uh, then let's have that conversation. I'll be very happy to. I think it's a conversation worth having. Whatever our orientation, whatever our desire, whatever sphere of life that we're talking about, let us learn the pattern and the character of Christ's love, his self-denying love for the sake of others and even submit our loves to his ways and his wisdom. And that leads to the question, then what is the character of this Lord's love? What is it? Come back with me to chapter uh, 6. Verse 9 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 9, uh, where we read this. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And brothers and sisters, the very next thing that Luke does for us is parade a lineup of 12 men in front of us, disciples, apostles, and shows us which side they're on, and shows us what they need to stand for, what they will stand for, and by implication, I think it's clear, will we stand among them? Please keep reading from verse 12. One of those days, verse 12, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, 
His brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Friends, Luke chapter 6 would call us, Luke chapter 6 would call you to stand with a man who means to give life to those who need it, to stand by the guy who said in the synagogue, stand up in front of everyone, stretch out your hand. Luke 6 would call you to stand by that man. Luke 6 calls us to stand with Jesus, to stand for a cause that will lead to life for others, a love that mends and that heals and that sets right and restores and that is willing to stand against stuffy opposition and scary opposition and empty rules that ruin people and their spiritual lives before God. And perhaps you might think, well, hang on, hang on a minute, that's a bit dramatic. Like, that's a dramatic way to describe the story that's gone on there. I mean, the, the, the guy with the shriveled hand and in the synagogue and everything, he could have come back tomorrow, couldn't he? I mean, the Pharisees, think of what their objection actually was. Their objection wasn't it. It was, it was that he'd done it on the Sabbath, not that he'd healed the guy's hand. Just come back tomorrow, bloke with the shriveled hand, can't you? The issue for the Pharisees with the Sabbath, not life or death, they didn't hate this guy, they didn't wish him dead or destroyed. And you're right in a sense, because no, they didn't hate the guy with the hand. But I think this is a story about the trajectory that these two courses are on, because they may not hate the guy with the shriveled hand, but I think we see hate beginning to form with these men. Take a look at verse 11. But they were furious. Furious at what? Furious at a man's hand being healed. They were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And I think Jesus was here. Jesus here is showing the trajectory. A trajectory for life. And what standing up for life will look like in the trajectory of a life standing against Jesus. And he's saying to his disciples, guys, this is what we're going to stand for. And if you stand with me and the gospel, and if you're known for that, if you lead with that, then shriveled lives will come alive. Ruined lives will find repair. I suspect as readers, we're supposed to skim ahead in our minds about saving and destroying and where these two paths end up. Luke 23, Pilate, thinking ahead to Friday, aren't we? Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man, Jesus, as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent Jesus back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him with one voice. They cried out, away with this man. And down at verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. I ask you, which is lawful, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? Um, could we conclude just with um, a few of those words from Max Stiles? Afraid? I had just watched my brother do one of the bravest things I'd ever seen. Afraid? We all knew how very brave, how very bold Thabiti is with the gospel. And then Max says this, he says, 
Boldness is not a lack of fear. It is faith in something bigger than our fears so that we appear fearless. Confidence in something bigger than our fears gives us the strength to do the right thing in spite of opposition or persecution. If anything is needed in Christian witness today, it is boldness. We don't need bigger music ministries, longer prayer walks, nicer church foyers. We need boldness, wise boldness, gracious boldness, boldness rooted in the hope that we have in the gospel, boldness mixed with love, but boldness nonetheless. Most Christians admire boldness in other people and most Christians long for more boldness in their own lives. Boldness inspires us. We sing, Lord, glorify your name, which means we want God to be bigger in the hearts and minds of more people. But in reality, our fears too often shrink God's name as if we are looking at God through the wrong end of the telescope. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, what a saviour, what a Lord we have in the Lord Jesus Christ who stood for love, who stood for life, who walked the road to the cross for life and not for his own life. Father, we pray that you give us the eyes to see the the life-giving power of the gospel afresh, to see it as an extraordinary, as a unique, as a wonderful thing in our very hands. We ask that you give us the eyes to see as well the destructive power of everything that gets in the way of the gospel, impedes its progress. Yes, Father, even things in our own lives, whether it's our own timidity or our own sin or perhaps other things. Father, we do ask that you'd help us to see ways in which, yes, our traditions and habits and old ways are perhaps blocking the spread of the gospel one way or another or pulling us off course or dragging us into obsessing about things that we could just leave aside or perhaps obscuring the clarity of the gospel. Give us, please, a willingness to scrutinise and to sacrifice and to serve. And, Father, may an adoration for Christ inspire us each personally to stand for Jesus ever more faithfully. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.